Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap we have Suspiria, starring Jessica Harper, Stefania Cassini, Flavio Bucci, and Joan Bennett. Written by Dario Argento and Daria Nicolotti, and directed by Dario Argento. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time to close another film review cast, the, the spooky cast, uh, the horror plus one. Yeah, it's gone, this one's gone by really quick. Really quick. And today we are wrapping up from 1977, Suspiria, our first time talking about Dario Argento. And like the last three weeks, we have a guest in the house. So I'd like to introduce you to Rachel. Um, hi, everybody. I'm Rachel. I'm not a huge fan of horror film, um, but being friends with Jesse uh, comes with some costs. So we'll <laughs> we'll see how this goes. Friends with uh, consequences. Is exactly. <laughs> I think, I think, yeah, victim of much a, a movie night here and there. <laughs> You're expensive one, Jesse. Excellent. And we're switching up the drinks a little bit this week in honor of Rachel being here and a drink that I concocted a few years ago in a drunken stupor at a Halloween party. I wandered over to the liquor area and just kind of put together a bunch of crap and they came up to me and they said, Jesse, what are you making? And I just handed it to somebody and I was like, it's witch's brew. And it was garbage. It was so <laughs> terrible. So I um, kind of reworked it. So we're drinking Salem witch's brew, a more fallish drink with some nice spice cider from Trader Joe's, a little dusting of cinnamon and everyone's favorite Jefferson's bourbon. So what do you guys think? <laughs> Winner, much better than... That other witch's brew. Oh, yeah. It's better than the original. It doesn't have boysenberry vodka or whatever it was originally in it. it was, oh, no. But what? Really? It was some crap berry. Yeah, that, that's pretty close. So Makes our peanut butter and jelly sound good, huh? It does. <laughs> that's rough. Excellent. Uh, real quick, before we get started, you know, this last week, you know, when we had Nate on, we discussed um, special effect to make, make makeup and a lot of good responses but overwhelming responses from a lot of people in the direction of the thing. So it's got great, great special effects makeup. Rachel, just really quickly, what do you think of the thing? The thing? Oh, it's my favorite movie. <laughs> it's the best. Maybe the best movie ever made. Wow. I sense a ton of sarcasm there. No, I really, really, <laughs> she really likes really like the thing. <laughs> my, oh, really? My email password and or my password for everything is some variation of something from the thing and then numbers and letters at the end. It may or may not be taco hat. It's Kurt Russell's $1,200 taco hat. Excellent. Well, are you both ready? Yep. Let's do it. Excellent. Well, let's dive right in to our flight question. I don't doubt that we're going to talk about that Goblin soundtrack today. But Rachel, you know, uh, coming as the guest, you have to bring the flight and the nightcap question. So what do you got for us today? Sure. So um, I brought a kind of a would you rather. So you guys have been talking about kind of um, films, uh, horror films from the 70s, mostly a little bit early 80s. And a lot of these um, have had an impact on film uh, and horror film 
uh, moving forward. So the, the question is, would you rather be able to watch these original films, Texas Chainsaw, The Exorcist, um, Suspiria, maybe, um, or would you rather be able to watch their legacy, the films that have come after that have um, kind of refined the the original films? So you're asking, would I rather chop my foot off or chop my hand off? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you get the original movie from the 70s or the field that it inspired. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's such a tough question. You want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. I feel like saying just barely is a cop out on this, but I really do mean maybe just barely. I think I'm going to take the field. I love these origin points that you're referencing for being the first across the finish line, even though some of them weren't quite the first, but in a studio sense in the Hollywood sort of manner that holds a lot of credence with me, but the field is just so large. So if I was stuck on a desert Island and I could either watch the originals or the offspring of the originals, I'm going to have to go with the latter but it's not by much. If you think about it, what are we really comparing? Mm-hmm. These great originals, which are ones, yeah. and there might be from the offspring <clears throat> twos or maybe threes. So it's it's a fair trade in some ways. So I'm not missing, you know, Nightmare Four. <laughs> you, you know, I'm not, you know, yeah. oh shoot, I don't get that because I ch- so it's close. That's a great question though. I'm going to go with the field. Okay, Rachel. Yeah, I'm going to go with that as well. I think the importance of these original works is can't be understated, but I think that as time goes by, there's an opportunity to really refine the art form, um, to build more um, off of what kind of came first, and I think um, that I appreciate those a lot more. This is tough. Mm-hmm. This is like I have to sacrifice Halloween or... <laughs> And then, but I do get Halloween's two through eight, and then the two remakes, and then the reimagining. So <laughs> there is that. There's some moments in some of that. Yeah. You could just splice all those moments together and make a one of your own. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna take the field, but by an inch, mm-hmm. only because I am a big fan of the subsequent slasher genre inspired by films like Black Christmas, Texas Chainsaw, and Halloween. They're a lot of fun, they're schlocky, and they made like one every month. But between that, you know, you get this, you get all this Italian stuff that Argento's doing, um, the Eurohor, these gore fests, their zombie films, the stuff with Lucio Fulci, and then all into the 80s. And all of that has to be leading to the found footage movement, which goes to say if we don't have a lot of this stuff in the 70s, do we not get that? So I think I could be happy with the field. <laughs> But I got to say bye to Halloween. I mean, you know how hard that is for me. If we can play a little fast and loose with the dates too, I think it saves a movie that's both very precious to you two, which would be that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was I was kind of hoping that we'd cut it off at like 80, 81. 1981. <laughs> we, the thing makes the cutoff in 1982. That's a great question. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we actually haven't done probably any would you rathers. Would you rather have this or that in terms of like film discussion? So... The joys of bringing on a fresh guest. Exactly. New ideas. Well done, Rachel. Excellent. I love both of your choices. So I think we're going to have a lot to talk about with this movie. So why don't we just jump headfirst right in and we have our review breakdown of Suspiria. Roses are red. 
That's from the teaser trailer for Suspiria. It's actually the skeleton brushing her hair, singing the little, the little rhyme there, and then turns and she's like a skeleton, and that'll be the end of you. That <laughs> you got, you got that. So, Suspiria opens up with standard credit sequence, overplayed by um, some music by the band. They're credited as the Goblins, but they're just simply Goblin. Um, and they had previously scored Argento's prior entry, Deep Red, which we've talked about before. But here they are in full force. Let's talk about the music first, first and foremost. What do you guys kind of think of these opening melodic melodies? You get some chanting in there. You get some nice droney music. But it's also very lullaby-like to me, almost like a, like a children's nursery rhyme of sorts, fairy tale-ish. My God, your poor children. You scared the hell out of them. <laughs> yeah. That's a nursery rhyme. You're never telling my child a bed night, a good night story. Witch, 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 witch. Yeah, in a happy kind of bed nighty way. Okay. <laughs> Rachel, you want to go first? Sure. So I thought um, that it complemented uh, the film really well. Um, it kind of sounds like a music box, and I think it goes well with it being in a ballet school. Uh, I think they're kind of telegraphing their punches by saying witch repeatedly at the very beginning of the film. If you didn't know what it was about, they're letting you know. But I think um, the scoring goes really well with with um, kind of the film overall. Yeah, telegraphing, that's the perfect word for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a witch movie. It's interesting for about half the film. Mm-hmm. And then it starts to take on a Scarborough Fair or Parsley Sage, Rosemary, <laughs> and Thine feel from The Graduate. Okay. And it just becomes overwrought and, oh man, almost a little silly for me. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> so half of it's okay. Okay. It, it, it does work though. I mean, it, it, it sounds creepy. Mm-hmm. I think sure. I think that's the point. I think part of the problem is, and I, I found this out just doing a little bit of research, so Italian films just in general, whether it's Sergio Leone Westerns, um, they're notorious for composing the score before the film's even finished. So they're just making the music up and then they're just jamming it together. So when you do listen to a score like this and when it's in kind of running in, in the film subsequent with the images, it does seem a little bit disjointed and a little bit like, eh, maybe that doesn't get quite go with that. And you, it kind of gets stretched out, overdrawn and kind of pulled apart. But I think that works in this film in particular to its benefit being that it is almost like an Alice in Wonderland type of film deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. Uh, uh, I can't remember her name. <laughs> Susie Banyan. There we go. Uh, down she goes with this coven of witches. So Goblin was a bit of a middling band prior to this though. Mm-hmm. And this certainly sent them into the stratosphere. This thing sold and sold and sold. So they were very happy to have scored it. And it moved that band to a more prominent position in the Italian progressive rock scene in the late 70s, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, I don't disagree with any of that. Yeah. It, 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 it fits the film. Um, yeah. 
I think it could have done with a little variation. You can start with the theme and then mix it up a little bit further as you go along, and that might have helped out by the halfway point. Like maybe gone warlock, warlock, warlock. <laughs> like that kind of variant? Or do you want something a little bit more, like maybe a harp? Yeah. <laughs> so something. I, I agree with her. I think that's a problem that like kind of befalls a lot of horror films is variation. I think a lot of horror film scores. Other than Wait that, a minute. Are we going into horror films or formulaic on Rice Smile? This is uncharted <laughs> territory. <laughs> no, just the score. I mean, you can have a great theme like this one has, but then you, there's not much left to kind of back it up. So you end up overusing it a lot. And I think that's why, why you get a little burnt out on it. But as I kind of attribute this film, this is, I, I kind of find myself going a little mad watching this movie in a good way. Um, and the music certainly helps me kind of feel uneasy and, and, and dread. Uh, the chanting certainly helps with that. Goblin's, uh, Goblin's favorite, uh, my favorite Goblin soundtrack is actually coming up in a few, few years after this one. And it's a little film called Tenebrae. And that has some great variation to that, to that soundtrack. Mm. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time talking about Daria Argento's giallo roots. So giallo meaning these kind of crime psychological thrillers with the gloved killer and the fedora, which was a whole genre in the in Italy, going all the way back to Mario Bava and with the girl who knew too much. And that, that's a whole conversation for another day because we got to cover Bava at one point and then Argento's early works. But this is more of a supernatural film. But... I want to ask you now, both of you, uh, Dario Argento, just kind of going in, is this your first film that you ever saw of his or kind of like, what are just your impressions of like his type of filmmaking? Yeah. So this is my first Dario Argento film and maybe the last, I don't know. Like, we'll see. We'll see what Jesse picks for other movie nights. But I think, um, you know, I was a little creeped out. I had seen the preview for it on a like midnight movie madness thing at the guild at one point and i was like oh this movie looks creepy and so i was a little hesitant going into this um you know watching it on my own um it definitely was not as frightening as the um trailer leads you to believe i think the trailer is maybe the scariest part uh first no <laughs> i probably prefer bava uh, i love black sunday mm -hmm. um but again, I'm not going to say that I have this wide volume of 25 Argento films that I could reference. Mm -hmm. Independent horror is an interesting genre inside the larger world of horror. Foreign independent horror takes that to an even different level. And so I think, and I'm sure we're going to get into this, the premise of how this trilogy, and this is the first entry into what's a trilogy, was was crafted, ended up being a little bit more compelling to me than maybe the one-offs. And I have to admit, I haven't seen the third entry in this trilogy. It's garbage. Feels like Godfather 3, especially with the gap between <laughs> this and Inferno. Yeah. But nonetheless, I don't know if that's really an answer. I prefer Bava. Mm -hmm. um, I have a little bit of stuff with Fulci with some of that zombie stuff. But I think I'm going to go with Bava as my go-to. But I'm not un entirely unfamiliar with Argento. Okay. This has got to be, what, 15th time for you on this, and you have the whole entire collection in your room, right? The whole Bava, the whole Argento collection. Like, he had done the, the three Jolly films, The Bird of the Crystal Plumage, Cat of Nine Tails, and Four Flies on Gray Velvet, and then Deep Red, and then this one. This was the one that, like, 
made him like a superstar. It was yeah. very popular in the States here and very popular out in Italy. So then he kind of propelled that to the 80s. And honestly, his last good movie, and it's where I stopped buying his films, is 1987. And it's a film called Opera. And it's kind of a retelling of Macbeth, but with like a killer element. It's actually pretty, and it's actually pretty good. Um, but one thing that he does, and we've talked about it a lot on this show before with like Brian De Palma and Quentin Tarantino, is the use of violence. Now, um, because this is such a supernatural film and a very fairy tale like in its presentation, to me, the violence also kind of shows that it's very stylized, it's very over the top, it's very grandiose, especially in the scene coming up. But we'll, we'll get there. But I kind of see a little bit of like uh, De Palma, like kind of taking after Argento a little bit, especially with these films coming out before he even hits it with with Carrie. Yeah, no, for sure. Anybody that's as, I don't want to say abrasive, but maybe I do want to say abrasive, with their use of blood, artistically. <laughs> it almost serves as the paint on the canvas, thus being the silver screen, and you are at the showing of this. And this film does have a very art house feel to it. So, yeah, I, I can see the use of blood the same way De Palma does, and I think that's a fair, fair comparison. I think some of the smoky nature in some of De Palma's work, especially in Carrie, and a little bit in this, kind of rival each other as well. There is a bit of a, do you know what I mean? A, like, it's not quite grainy. It's a little grainy with a little bit of focus that is slightly off, and and I feel like De Palma might have gone to school on that a little bit here with him. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't actually. Do you have? Any sound about De Palma saying he was very influential <laughs> in me? Did I, I should have looked at that. I wish I, I just thought. I honestly just thought about it. No, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. there, there's a tie there. It seems. Okay, we'll All look. Right. We'll look into it. But let's talk about our protagonist, our protagonist, and uh, Susie Banyan, played by Jessica Harper here, as she lands here in Germany to come attend this prestigious ballet school on a dark and stormy night and she can't even get into the building as soon as she she gets in um but is seeing a bunch of very weird shit right from the get-go and one is this girl her name was pat <laughs> by the way um just kind of having like a tiff here at the entrance and then leaving to go stay with a friend and thus the chaos begins okay let's talk about this sequence here what do you guys think of this first opening murder sequence? So it was definitely a little bit more graphic than I anticipated it being, being able to see, you know, into the chest cavity. And it was a lot of uh, stabbing. And, and I think the, the stained glass in the ceiling was an interesting um, kind of way to have everything come down. Um, yeah, so that, it, that's the it, part that always gets me is like when they show that shot and like, he somehow like carved like enough to expose the heart that and, was still beating somehow, <laughs> and then and then he stabs the heart like that's that's yeah that's a lot. So it you know it really comes out strong right out of the gate with kind of what the film is purporting to be, um, and I think you know it it kind of lets you know what you're in for from the start. A tone setter. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could agree with you anymore on that. It certainly sets for what the film is going to be, which is mostly a totally inactive protagonist <laughs> that mostly doesn't matter the entire film. 
She gets out the airport. We watch her get rained on. She goes to the taxi. She doesn't get in the school. And we spend, and I timed it twice, almost eight minutes with this Pat character in this bathroom getting annihilated in what looks like bad children's afternoon on Saturday puppet theater behind a black cloak, which is never explained any later, whether that's the devil or a demon, because the witch isn't that thing to then be pulled out. And this is the deal breaker for me. If that wasn't, he pulls her out of the window, which has no trellis, no balcony, nothing. And I understand in a surreal film, you're allowed to play fast and loose with like reality. And in a movie that's based on a poem from the mid 19th century that is recounting the fates and just bullshit. That's already a deal breaker for me. I get it. It's surreal. And the coloring is surreal. She's pulled out the window and lands on a balcony that somehow becomes a cage to then is being put back into the room. That's not the room, but where the stained glass is. And if that's not the deal breaker, this is for me. <laughs> when we talk about witchcraft, you have to acknowledge the use of symbols. Pentagrams. Why doesn't that glass that is clearly the symbol of something fall in some meaningful design on the floor. Like it's shocking and they're mm -hmm. bloody and cut to pieces yeah. and the heart thing, right? Okay. That, that, and this is not my take on the whole film. I think people are going to be surprised with what I end up on this. Right. Okay. So I'm not telling you that I'm going to rock gut this out. Cause I'm not, it's not a rock gut <laughs> film for me. Alrighty. But those first 13 minutes, well, those six minutes I'm talking about, is just swing and miss, swing and miss, swing and miss, swing and miss. And you're right, Rachel, when it comes to the protagonist, for me, it's a perfect example of what she's going to be most of the film, which is asleep because she's drugged. Yeah, I, like, I don't know, like, we're going to, like, yin and yang here because I think this is the high point of the movie 13 minutes in. I mean, it's it's grandiose, and I get where you go. Like, the geography on the roof is insane. Like, it's all over the place. Like, there's cage, there's steel, then now they're on top of the stained glass. There's no trellis. Like, it, it's nuts. But I don't dare call, like, the act of murder or something, like, beautiful. But just kind of the way with the stained glass and the way it's scored, like, it's it's done very well. And like, as she's kind of there and we kind of, it kind of catches her friend uh, on the floor there. It's, it looks great. Like for, for, for how it's done. Um, this is one, this is one of the best death sequences in my opinion, in all of horror films. I mean, it's certainly something that sticks with you. And my first time seeing Suspiria, I was like, Oh my God, buckle up. Like we're in for like a wild ride. And I don't think the rest of the film ever truly gets to the heights of this one scene, even though I, I kind of enjoyed the rest of the movie. What do you, what do you guys think? Is this kind of, <laughs> let me say this cause I'm going to forget it. I want to be fair on this. Here's what I think is a space that this does do quite well. In every horror film, there's that moment where like, oh my God, the basement's haunted. Don't go in the basement. I'm going to go in the basement. Like the suspension of disbelief to keep the character going along the same path. I think we have established this, at least in this moment. You can't leave this school. 
because that is certainly an easy way for our protagonist to solve this terrible dilemma, just exit. Except we've seen what had happened to Pat mm -hmm. upon doing that. So that is, we talked about it a little bit the last couple of weeks, right? Setups and paid off. That's set up quite well. Okay. You can't quite get away. And you're right. It is beautiful. I just, yeah, I said what I said. Sorry, Rachel, I cut you off. I'm mm -hmm. sorry. Go oh, ahead. no, it's fine. Um, I think the film is really very symmetrical in that you start with her coming into the rain to the front of the school, and then there's a gruesome murder. And I think um, he also sets up the a lot of um, his shots are reflections, and he sets that up in the window when she's kind of looking out and there's something hanging out um, before she gets pulled out by the witch who has a very mannish arm for an old Greek woman. I kind of thought that... <laughs> Now, is that Helena Marcos or is that, I kind of thought that was the the mute butler servant guy. Oh, you thought that was Pavlos? <laughs> that was Pavlos. But how would he get up there? I don't know. It's a great point. And it's never told to us is the problem. Right. You know, Rich, you said something that it's really hit me to the symmetry of this film. The shapes, and maybe I'm just old fashioned. I like my witches with pentagrams and, and that kind of stuff. And brooms? Me. Yes. Cats. <laughs> Covens and, you know, yeah. candles. It is very symmetrical. And the symmetry that I found in this film actually was the geography of shape on the cinema or the celluloid, which was a square, a red square, another square, a red square, 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 a very squarish and symmetrical cubist, mm -hmm. artistically speaking, in a surreal depiction of witchcraft. So I found the same thing. The way you're bookending it is, is, is very, very spot on. I love that. And I saw that in the movie with, there's, it, I thought a lot about the overlook in The Shining. Mm. Like the art, the layout? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very similar look. He had some problems with that layout to, too. <laughs> yeah, maybe, and, and honestly, that might just be a thing for me. Maybe I don't like squares. I, I, or is it? He is, doesn't, he hates these cans. He, <laughs> different film entirely. The jerk? But, yeah. Uh, no, is it, or is it that you can't have, you don't have like a point of reference like in the locations? Because that can be frustrating. Actually, no, I wasn't frustrated by it, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. I was rather glad that there was something for me to look at on the screen because a lot of the movie, I was rather bored and it gave me something interesting to look at. Fair. So, but maybe in a deeper part of me, maybe I need to analyze my take on geometry and what I feel about that. I'm not trying to be, that sounds stupid, but I mean, maybe there's something there that I haven't. Well, it's all how the, 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 the all how the camera's kind of placed too. Sure. I mean, if you're breaking 180 degree rules and kind of going around, you can't establish your kind of threshold on like what the place looks like. And that that is a mistake in film, but in horror, I think you can kind of get away with it. Rachel, can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. In this first 20-ish minutes of the film, do you want... Our protagonist, what's her name, Diane? The girl. Susie? Uh, Susie? Susie, sorry, yeah. She looks like a Diane to me. <laughs> yeah. Do you want Susan to be a little bit more, I don't know if aggressive is the right word, but active in her own role in the story? Did you find, as, as, a, as a woman, I'm curious what you thought about that. So I'm going to be honest with you. I thought she was one of the dead people because I've discovered <laughs> through watching this film that all like waif-like women from the 70s look exactly the same to me. So I was very confused with this scene because she disappears and neither of these women say each other's names to each other. So I had no idea what was happening. I think, <laughs> um, you know, 
Susie getting to the the school and not getting in, she doesn't have a whole lot of agency there, and it's disappointing, but it also seems to fit with the time and, you know, it's not like, you know, now you can call from your cell phone. It's like if they don't let you in, go find a hotel or something, right? Yeah, you know, screwed. I think technology has opened up some doors that maybe she would not have been able to at that time. Jesse, I'm going to moderate you for a minute here. Okay. This has been a cast that's been filled with strong roles played by women. Very sure. strong characters in mm -hmm. this cast from Last Girl to The Omen. Yeah. Right. Is she the worst depiction of main screen female in this cast that we've seen in this for you? Cast for sure. I don't mean yeah. in, and not in light. Just yeah, yeah. Did that did that did that resonate more with you because of what we'd seen prior, or did it not bother you at all? Um, I don't know if it bothers me. I mean, she eventually gets down to it. I mean, she puts the pieces together at the very end to kind of kind of figure it out. And it is very because it is so surrealist and dreamlike, very Salvador Dali, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um even though she is kind of drugged throughout the duration of the film, it kind of lends itself to the mystery of it all behind, behind, behind the closed curtains. So it doesn't bother me. I, I get where you guys are coming from that. Like, yeah, yeah. I wish you would kind of like get take Sarah's more of an investigative element. And then we got to talk about the scene when she willingly jumps into the wire, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't kill the film for me, yeah. so to speak. So let's get to the, the dance school, and we're introduced to Madame Blanc, played by Joan Bennett. I don't know if you guys have ever watched Dark Shadows, uh, old soap opera, but she was the matriarch in that show. It's the only other thing I know her from, and this was actually her last film role. Uh, yeah. And then Miss Tanner, who's like the strict governess, like <laughs> teacher, stern, is Terrence Fletcher over here with, with, the, with the ruling stick. And then kind of introduced to, to the rest of the characters, um, but then another character that we're introduced to, and then I, I had totally forgotten about this. She kind of just disappears. Do they shake you up with all that talk about money? Well, I'm not exactly used to it. Same with me at first. Then I found out it's a charming habit around here. Susie. Sarah. I once read that names which begin with the letter S are the names of snakes. My favorite line delivery in the entire movie. But okay, so so Susie's trying to get her bearings here. I mean, she doesn't even have like the 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 shoes to, to go dance. She doesn't have a place to stay. So she's gonna come uh, stay with Olga, who had the craziest hairdo I'd ever seen before, and then the weirdest uh, decorated apartment. Like, what was that? Like, what design is that? Yeah. But then after Susie's, um, after the, the following night's events, uh, or after Susie passes out and she thinks she's sick, she's like, no, let the school have her. And we never see this character again. Victim of the witches? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't really know. She was interesting. She was really antagonistic uh, to this new girl right off the bat. And she was making fun of the other girl that was tattling about Pat's death, calling her Matahari, like... <laughs> she has some she has some good lines and then she's just gone after her like Queen Amidala situation in her apartment. It's exactly what it looked like. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um I don't know that she moves the story forward that much. I I guess I don't really understand 
what purpose she serves other than to give Susie a place that she wants to stay and then have to get pulled back into the school. Yeah, we're treading water with this character, it seems like. But every horror film has this type of character. We talked about Franklin in Texas Chainsaw, like these annoying thorn in your side characters that are just there for like a quick like side jab and then we want to see them killed off mm-hmm. um but Olga is just Olga survives the film she just goes on her merry way. but we don't even see her at the dance school I just I thought that was rather interesting there's a big thing that is happening at the same time that is supposed to move the story forward and that's this role of money mm-hmm. so if you have this school with these ballerinas and references to Matahari and everything is for sale and you have a governess and the first thing that the matriarch of the school says is my aren't you pretty and it's you can buy these shoes for me here's how much the rent's going to cost money 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 we're clearly setting up something that's not going to be paid off until the hour and seven minute mark in the film and mostly won't even be discussed again after we get out of this apartment and that is what we will come to discover as that this coven of witches is using their powers to be a honeypot okay they want money yeah that's what they want sure okay fine it's almost like as much as the olga roommate is forgotten and then not dealt with so is this really i think essential piece of the film isn't dealt with for almost an hour Mm -hmm. and not quite maybe 40 minutes we're probably 20 minutes in now and again, that was more frustrating to me than what wasn't happening is that really had some potential. What is exactly going on in that school? You have these ballerinas. They're all relatively pretty and like you said, kind of waifish. But I mean, there is that element there. Mm -hmm. You have these male ballerinas there. Ballet dancers, I think, is probably more appropriate. Male, Anyway, whatever. Yeah. Why aren't they? Be, I mean, and there's even a hint a couple times, like maybe on the side, there's a little action going on here upstairs. It just doesn't get there. What, um, this is very interesting and it's, it's making me come up with something to do in the future. We're going to have to revisit this because this film was remade last year. Did you see it? Did see Tilda it. Tilda Swinton, right? Tilda Swinton and Dakota Johnson. It is huge twist though, right? Compared to this one. Definitely. But all the faults that we have with this film are not in that remake, which is very interesting. The older characters nowhere to be seen. Uh, The clandestine activities of the witches, I think are much more obvious and apparent. Uh, It was very, it was made very much in the Ari Aster sense of filmmaking. So it had that hereditary and Midsommar vibe to it. It deeply affected me. Like it was a very troubling film to watch, but it's interesting. Like you two are kind of pointing at these things, um, and they're nowhere to be found in the remix. I wonder if you would enjoy it more than this film. That would be a fun cask sometime. Yeah, remakes of horror movies. Mm-hmm. We could do that. Be fun. We'll have to revisit revisit that. Yeah. Uh, let's stay on task here. So a bunch of crazy stuff's just happening here at the at the, at the witches the witches house here. We, we don't know what uh, it's witches other than the soundtrack letting us know. Uh, so the first kind of instance of this is the maggot infestation of the meat that went bad upstairs, but more so just a catalyst so we can kind of go have a dormitories in the gymnasium area 
to have uh, this sequence here. They lied to us. The treacherous is here. That's her. The one who's snoring. How do you know? I'm sure it's her. Last year for a while, I lived in one of the guest rooms. Once at the top of the stairs. One night, I had someone come in very late and get into bed in the room next to mine. And then, then I heard this weird, guys think of this sequence because i actually think that moment there and the dividing sheer between the direct the directress and um our two characters here is actually pretty creepy and i mean it, maybe it's because it's all red and it's like very raspy set of of pipes here but i think it's because we don't know what the directress looks like and i'm, I'm just kind of imagining like this is queen witch here like what is what's behind that curtain there what do you guys think of this sequence it didn't make a whole lot of sense why they had the curtains up in the first place until this visual, right? So to have her directly behind them wheezing and dying of edema or whatever's going on back there. Um, <laughs> edema, yes. <laughs> she, you know, I, I, they walk in and I was like, why, why are they putting curtains just kind of around the room? And I, it, it took a while for me to get that. I think... It does a good amount to kind of start planting the seeds of something weird is going on here beyond, um, you know, passing out during dance rehearsal and maggots falling from the ceiling. But um, it, yeah, it took me a while to kind of figure out what the purpose of what was going on was. <clears throat> I think prior to this point, we've set up why that woman on the other side of the sheath matters. Mm -hmm. Um Jessica's had, I'm sorry, Susie has had a spell cast on her pretty early that's caused her to be dizzy. That is the scene that Rachel was talking about where she just gets danced too hard and faints. Oh no, she walked down the hallway and got the glint of the knife. Yeah, but I kind of felt like that woman was a witch that was trying to cast something on her. With the little boy? The yeah. little boy that fell out of a Vermeer painting from 300 years prior to this movie was made. Yeah. So we've got that and... We're setting up this rather nefarious grounds that she has chosen to pursue this art on or at. Mm -hmm. It looks okay. I just got it like the sound to me that pretends to be really creepy. And when you get down to it, I don't want some stranger, much less a 94 year old hooker that Argento found off the street to cast as that old witch <laughs> uncredited in the role, but according to Jessica Harper, that's where they found that woman. Oh, 90, wow. uh, that's tr true story, swear. Wow. 94-year-old hooker, want to be in a movie? Come on. She probably would breathe like that anyway. <laughs> a lot of tread on those toes. Oh, Elena Marcos, okay. <laughs> so that's creepy, and someone in bed, all jokes aside, breathing is, is also creepy, but then, and what? Like, I keep, and what? Mm -hmm. And then she left you alone, and you haven't heard from her since. So what? Mm -hmm. And what? I think I like it because of the gossip behind it all. I mean, it's okay. it's we're kind of piecing together a story or a tale or evidence just through hearsay. 
and whatever Pat was able to tell Sarah before she ran out of the the, the dance school and kind of what they're doing right now. It feels very much like a sleepover and like, oh, it's like gossip time. And and I like, I wish we had like never seen what Elena Marcos looks like at the end of the movie. Like this is much better for me. Just this sil- breathing, uh, this breathing silhouette works so much more for me. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of at least planting the seed even more that this is like, we're building up to this person, right? Is that what we kind sure. of feel? But does the labored breathing of the sleeping woman undercut her as a threat? What is frightening about, you know, this old lady that just can't breathe very well while she's sleeping? That's a good point. And I, and I, and I don't know, but I don't know what this coven's capable of. I mean, they're, they're stabbing people in the heart and throwing them through stained glass. I don't know where their power spectrum is. Right. And we're going to come to find out how powerful that particular labored breathing old lady is in a little while. But at this point, it's just, who's the poor old breather? Yeah, come it, To what? And then the other thing, it was frustrating. This was frustrating. Pull the damn curtain back. Maybe she's dying. Maybe she needs mouth to mouth. And check her out. Like, do something. <laughs> so I think there's a level of reverence that they are supposed to hold to the directors or teachers at this. I'm not sure that's there. And I do think it's a good point that you made though, Jesse, maybe the catty nature of that many females all in close proximity to each other breeds that whatever that is. And it does give that gossipy feel. And in fact, that's going to play out going forward because that's how they come to try to figure out exactly what's going on is Gossiping in the pool, gossiping as they walk down the hall, gossiping in bed before she falls asleep again. Gossip, gossip, gossip. That is played out the rest of the film. So going back to Quincy's writings that this is loosely based on is uh, this is supposed to be Mater Suspiriorum, the Lady of Sighs. Uh, the other two entries cover the other the other two, but yeah, th- I guess this is that that's supposed to be this person here. She's the one that set up this place all the years ago, and. Yeah, I don't know. I I kind of like the mystery of it all, and I like that it's like this like dark shade of red. I mean, it's, the, it's like the Kenny Rogers roasters in Seinfeld. It's like what they're like living right now. But let's talk about the color. Is the color abrasive to either of you? Did it lend itself stylistically nicely to the look of the film? Did it get old? Like, I don't know. I feel like we're in this fairy tale space discussing this. This very lethargic Alice in Wonderland, like deeper and deeper we go. I dig the colors. I like the greens. I like the shades of reds, like the blues. Like this is like a weird looking school. Is this doing anything for either of you? I mean, the whole film is kind of a Wes Anderson fever dream, right? Mm -hmm. Like if he got really sick and then made a film, it would be these bowls and this lighting and things like that. And I think it works because it makes it kind of creepier. I don't, I, you know, I think that the design of the school is interesting. Um, the the set work is really detailed and vivid. And I think that is kind of maybe the thing that's the most otherworldly out of any, that and maybe the maggots falling from the ceiling is kind of the most out of the realm of reality for the film. It's 99 minutes, the film. It's a good hour, 40 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure when, but there is a point in the film when I couldn't take another red backdrop and another score by Goblin. It just got to be 
I wouldn't say abrasive, but it got to be rather oppressive. And for a lot of this film, and even during this point, I think mm-hmm. looking at that silhouette behind that that sheath is interesting. Like I agree with you, mm-hmm. but it's starting to get a little bit old. Sure. No, that's entirely fair. I mean, but the school does look creepy and it is for me taking on a bit of a David Lynch like look in some ways that surreal piece. This is certainly more vibrant than his stuff is, Mm -hmm. but it's bordering in that. And I actually don't mind that. Mm -hmm. I don't mind that as long as there's still a thread of some linear story in there. Sure. And this has that. There's a clear story here. Just hearkening to the remake, just very briefly. So it's set in Berlin, post-war Berlin, and almost all color is stripped away from that film. There's not a green, a red, a blue. It's a very drab-looking film. I passed on that because of what I used to think about this film. Mm -hmm. And you're spiking my interest. (laughs) So I'm making it sound more palatable. A little bit. (laughs) Yeah, sure, okay. And maybe I did it. It certainly left an impression on you. I and I and I liked it, but I like this more. And I think maybe because I like this one too much, because I didn't have my go- I, you have Tom York music in that one instead of Goblin. Oh, but it's not abrasive like like this one. But I liked I dig the Goblin score. I like the lighting. I like the way this 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 place looks because I don't know, man. I just dig the way Italians make their movies sometimes. All in, man. Go good. Awesome. Let's talk about another thing, because you brought this up to me when I asked you. I was like, would you want to come up for Suspiria? Let's talk about the dubbing for a second. Does that bother you at all? Like, it's... Uh... It was... It's very distracting. I think um, I, I had talked to a friend before I watched this film, and she kind of warned me about it, so I felt a little more prepared going in. But I think if you aren't don't know what you're watching when you look at it, you're not ready for people's mouths to not match their words, but them to still be like speaking English, but not at the same pace as the sound. And there are, there are a couple of like key spots that there's problems with that. Not just with the words too. Mm -hmm. Um, When um, that are just kind of production blips, I guess. So when Susie passes out and Tanner is keeping the time with the music, she's in double meter she's in duple <laughs> and the music is in triple and she's off the beat and that's just you know they're overlaying the sound afterward or something like that so yep. there there are things that i think you could make an argument that he did it intentionally to kind of throw you off and make you uncomfortable but i don't know that that's necessarily true making these italian films is completely and utterly insane so jessica harper and joan bennett and I think one other, they're American. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Sarah and uh, Olga, they're Italian. And then later, Udo Kier and the doctor that that she runs into that gives her the, the witch spiel, they're German. So when you make one of these films, you're not learning one language and doing it in that. You're doing it in your native language, and then it's getting dubbed in whatever release language you're, you're doing it. Makes for a whole bunch of dubbing problems. Like it's worse than like when they dub Japanese films, honestly, because, but that's how they make the movie. I mean, think of being like an actor in this thing. Like you got to like know that person's lines and know when they, and cause then it's your turn. Cause you can't understand like what they're saying. So I think there's something to that. Um, I don't know if that's an efficient way of making movies. <laughs> I'm spoiled mm. because I've grown up with American cinema and gone to foreign secondarily like just about everybody really and so because of that what rachel's talking about 
doesn't play terrifically well for me. Look, there's a reason why American films are the best. Now, I know there's a few here and there that you, mostly you can't though. You you just can't. If we take a collection of all, it's it's really not even close. If the movie's smoother and these seems like making sure that your the pantameter matches and the beat that you're moving to matches, I, it's it's it flows better. But I do think the movie has a bit of a screech-like effect with the album on the record player. Should you stop it too abruptly from time to time? And in some ways, for as much as I agree with every syllable you uttered there, that it is a bit distracting. It that kind of works for me. It is uncomfortable. And you take that for me, just personally, the discomfort that that gives me with kind of the lush environment that it's shot on. And it's off-putting in a good, horrifying way. Mm-hmm. I actually don't want to be really comfortable and cozy up in a horror film. You know what I mean? I, that's I, I kind of want to be like, fuck, I'm uncomfortable. Well, this one has a good setting for that. I mean, it's just, it doesn't look like something that's natural based on the lighting and the design, but... I just wanted to get your thoughts on the dubbing. I mean, this is... Well, what is... about you? What do you think? I know you like your, your your Italian stuff, but I mean, can we line up the words here? Let's go, man. I do. I wish uh, there... I'm lucky, though, because I have the English language track on the disc I have and the Italian language, so that one actually flows a lot smoother. Um, but um, it's just interesting because I do want to watch in English because the protagonist is speaking English, so... At a German school, too. <laughs> yeah, it's all over the place. There's, yeah, there's a lot of people in Germany speaking with Italian accents but English. And they're all saying ciao when they say goodbye to each other in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> Checkmate. There's, there's lots of choices in this film. Yeah. I, I, choices. Yeah I, I, yeah. I don't know. It's just, there's just something about the vibe of Argento film that just is, it's just an interesting space to play in. Okay. But something weird that, uh, that, that does occur here. And I don't know like what this has to do with the rest of the film, but it's this moment here. My dog's a peaceful, faithful animal. He's never hurt anyone. The boy must have done something to him first. Oh, the poor little animal, the poor little puppy. If I ever see him within a mile of the school again, I'll have him put to death. Stop it! I won't allow such talk, you understand? You won't allow it. Then get out, you angel dog. Get moving. You bitch! Out! I'm going. I'm going. Why do they pick on this blind guy and why do they end up killing him? Maybe if your kind of theory on the boon of the, the witch coven is to be fi- a financial, how does he play in, into that? I kind of wish this was explained a little bit more. It's another great gruesome death where his dog just like tears his throat out in an open square there in, in, in Germany where they filmed this. But I don't, I don't know what this has to do with the rest of the movie. <laughs> It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, I think, other than to throw in another death, right? To say, yeah, has it been a little while since our last death sequence? Yeah, this yeah. is maybe about the halfway point, so we've got to kill somebody else. Um, yeah, it doesn't. Daniel as a character doesn't make a whole lot of sense. He's playing piano on top of a record when she comes in and tells everybody to stop. Um, and then, you know, yeah, I think it just is kind of. Um, I wouldn't say gratuitous because I think it works in the space, but I think it's just sort of there to be another death and to highlight that these witches aren't messing around. It's kind of what it feels like for me. 
Yeah, right. In uh, in a hour, a hundred minute movie, we need to have a certain amount of deaths, and he just kind of seemed next in line for that. Okay, I'm gonna say something here that I'm actually not trying to be funny with. Mm. This shouting match over this dog that bites this kid that we really don't know anything about that doesn't serve much of a purpose, even at the end, isn't really played out between Daniel and Miss Tanner is strikingly similar to the extras from the Rocky Horror Picture Show that just didn't make it on set that day. It is that laughably absurd from the costuming. Like that dude is ready, if he wasn't blind, to start time warping any minute. Of all of the things that were crazy in this movie and ridiculous, this is number one. Even more so than I didn't care for the beginning totally. Mm -hmm. This is... Pointless. Now, if we want to get him outside with the dog, sweet, let's do it. And I agree that that death is horrible. Mm-hmm. There's a hundred other ways to do that other than how are we going to shoot this? I don't know. Ad lib. Like it is so schlockily done. Mm-hmm. Why would you have a blind piano player that clearly has no money? Cause that's the only gig he can get unless they don't want him to see. So now are we talking about eyes? Well, maybe because the opening scene had those eyes through the veil. I'm giving this movie way too much credit. None of that, <laughs> none of that plays out. If you're, if it's about the money, then that needs to be someone who is this ultra wealthy benefactor. That is part of some large ensemble that is moving towards some production in front of the King of who it, none of that is there. It's just three minutes of bullshit. No, it doesn't it, work it at does, all. It doesn't work for me either. It gets another death tally, but it's it's very perplexing. It takes up a good chunk of the movie at the like the like fifty minute mark here. Can we talk about the death of that blind man for a minute, Daniel? Yeah, that's coming. So we're in the middle of some square, mm-hmm. and what is it that causes the dog to kill him? I want to know what you guys think about that. <laughs> well, the dog looks up at the statue, a and, and maybe that's a, a witch a witch element that hasn't been told to us. And then he just turns like that or they bewitched the dog prior when it bit Arnold. <laughs> oh yeah. Maybe, maybe Albert was bewitching oh, the Albert, dog. Albert, yeah. Yeah. He's out there with the nanny bewitching the dog and the dog attacks them at that point. They could have glinted him with the knife like they did Susie. Well, it has kind of the like chanting frenetic music when Albert's walking in the square and then it just kind of stops. And that's one of the things that they do in this is they have that kind of the other, the other theme from the, from the score, they play that and then they stop it before your dramatic action. Almost like a music box. So is you know, were they all standing on the roof of that building chanting at the dog and casting a spell on it to attack Daniel? I want that gargoyle to be the embodiment of this coven that flies into the dog in some spiritual evil way. What that then provides for me is eyes on you anywhere you go. And I think there is a little bit of that in this, even Mm -hmm. from that opening with those searing yellow eyes of Pascal or whoever we decided that wasn't. Mm -hmm. That creates a larger range of focus and makes that coven all the more powerful because they can see you. There is no getting away and with the right glinting of a knife or sequence of symbols or whatever you have, you are possessable. I think that makes them more formidable. Because, Rachel, I keep going back to what you said. It was so well said. Why am I worried about a woman who's about to asphyxiate any moment? You're right. And this creates a larger worry in my mind 
I still think it's the gargoyle and some men are flying into the dog. I just, yeah, because it disappears. That's what it looks like. And there's a shadow. Mm-hmm. Okay. But mm-hmm. I want more. Yeah. I just want it to be more. Did they do that in the remake? Uh, not, not that I can remember. There is kind of like a, a cop element, but there's not like a, like a blind pianist, uh, sequence. No, it's just that they just get right into the weird, like right away with that one. So I have a good joke about a pianist one time. I'll tell you. Okay. You'll like it. <laughs> Magic lamp. That's funny. All righty. So let's get to, to Sarah now. So again, our protagonist is keeps eating the food that they're serving. So she's passed out in bed, I guess a lot more than I had realized in, in this film. And so then Sarah's like trying to like count the steps to kind of see when they leave to kind of, you know, get a hone in on, you know, what's going on here. But then she picks like the worst night because then they're onto her. And then I think in maybe five minutes too long of a chase sequence. Yeah. It's the, yeah. The razor blade over the lock, which that's, that's kind of an interesting image. I mean, it's, it's kind of this stalking slasherous nature. But then she escapes out the window, and I just hate this in movies. It just it just irks me to the nth degree. Like, she's close enough to know what like what she's looking at, and just like like a swimming pool just takes a dive into this bar bar, and then the music goes, and she's like thrashing about, and I'm like, I got to sour mash this scene just real briefly. She the guy should have gotten into the room, was grabbing her by the legs, and pulls away and accidentally falls into the wire. Like no human would willingly jump into this pit. <laughs> yeah. She takes a while getting out of that window. Like she could see the wire under and who, well, who also has just a room full of wire realistically in the ballet school. How much barbed wire do you need? Do you need a whole, whole room? I, I don't know. So, and, and the music was kind of ridiculous that, and the music from the maggot scene kind of sounds like a fight scene from a Ninja Turtles film. It just sounds like street fighter. And and it kind of, I don't know. It dampens the like frightening nature of what's going on. She's being chased, but it sounds like she's, you know, running down the streets of New York and she's going to get saved by somebody at the last minute. I want to hear your take, Matt, and then I have a question after that. Well, actually, I, I don't differ from either what you have said. I have a question for you guys, though. I watched that a couple scenes, that, that scene a couple times, too. I think it's just wire, not even barbed wire. Yeah, I don't I, think it would, like, shred her the way that it does. She's acting like it's, like, tearing her up. I mean, we're talking trench warfare, and maybe that's the German piece, right, where they managed to salvage some of the wire from the trench warfare yeah. in World War One. I, I don't go. know. There I, you go. But there's no razor element to it. It's just wire. So... It takes her forever to almost make it to the escape piece of that hallway or whatever the hell that is, that pit, to then just get stabbed again. I don't know. I guess it's it's interesting to watch that someone would choose to score it that way. It's interesting. I'll give it that. Prior to this film, what's like the premier like which film? Like that what that was made prior to this. Like I'm having a hard time, you know, coming to other you mentioned Black Sunday with Barbara Steele, but everything I can kind of think of is animated. It's fairy tales. It's Disney. Those are the witches that we've kind of seen. So I don't know what the film benchmark for witches is, but 
I think the mystery of like what they're doing, what they're up to, what they look like behind the skin uh, is intriguing to me. And I, that, I, I always enjoy that, even though I know that we don't really get that. Um, it's just the idea of these witches and what could they be? Are these better witches than Paranormal Activity 3? I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> I really did. I said, this, we're, he's going to ask me a question about. I don't think so. They're similar. They both are very old. I would actually argue the best version of witches that I can think of are the element of witches that we do see in Hereditary. I feel like that's a coven mm -hmm. to a certain degree. Yeah. Are they better than the ones in Paranormal Activity? I don't... And this is not a slight on the film. This is not like some deal-breaking moment because everyone knows me knows that I hate that film. No, they're not. There's more of them there. They're more active and... Filmmaking is just advanced, so it's just, no. It's but, just, it's a, but it's I know where you're going. It's just not the movie you signed. So up what, for. all right, let me let me ask you. How about for you? Are they better than Paranormal Three's witches? Way better, really. Yeah, Rachel, have you seen Paranormal Activity Three? I have not. It takes a turn at the end, and yeah. it's one of the few, one of the movies I've seen with Matt where just he was just when it ended, and for other reasons because the trailer d didn't show any of that footage. It was so irate. At like what had become of such a simple idea turned into this. I think you and I have bad luck watching movies together. <laughs> third entries in movies at oh, the theater. There you go. Iron Man three. Iron two. Man three. Yeah. We'll, we'll avoid third entries in the theaters. Yeah. They just take a turn. Like they're okay, and then I don't know. But who knew that that demon series that is Paranormal Activity would go the way of the witch? I don't know. Yeah. So. Everyone's dead now, <laughs> so we're going to get a big exposition dump. Have you ever heard of Helena Marcus? Oh, yes, she was a very famous black queen. That's that 94-year-old hooker on Fifth and L. talent for doing evil, the real mistress of magic. She lived and died in this city. Did you know that? Yes. And might there exist a guild of witches? The correct term would be a coven of witches. A woman becomes queen if her magic is a hundred times more powerful than the rest of the coven, which is like a serpent. Its strength rests with its leader, that is, with its head. A coven deprived of its leader is like a headless cobra, harmless. Skepticism is the natural reaction of people nowadays, but magic is ever-present. In this scene, you mentioned the reflections. This kind of did like a nice, interesting pull-in where they were kind of double reflected on the on the window there. Does this make you any more interested on what's going on at the school, or is this just like boring you to tears? I really want to know. I really want to know at this point. So not to be pedantic, um, but here goes. Um, so you didn't play this part, but he, he tells her that their goal is to accumulate great personal wealth, but that it can only be achieved by injury to others. That doesn't make sense as a motivation for a ballet school. That doesn't make sense for witches. So then I did a deep dive on the history of witches. <laughs> um, Sweet, I, here we go. And I found out that at the height of witch killing, um, you know, in kind of the Renaissance forward, Germany was where the majority of people were killed who were reputed to be witches. So why this woman would run away from Greece and then land in Germany didn't make any sense. But I, I really the main thing that just frustrated me was that their goal is to accumulate wealth. And Matt, I hadn't 
I hadn't put together the financial exchanges at the beginning of the film as making sense in this context. But if they're trying to gain per, like wealth, how is killing these women doing anything? How, why don't they run a hospital where they're injuring people and then making money that way? And the other thing is that I don't think wealth is really a motivation for witches in anything else. And I think especially with Helena Marcos being, sounding like she's about to die while she's just lying there, wouldn't it make more sense for it to be something like they're killing these women to take their power so that she can live forever? And, you know, I just, this was really where... They need the blood of a virgin. I was kind of <laughs> trying to suspend my disbelief on a lot of this film. And then I get to the point where he intentionally puts in an explanation for why everyone's doing what they do. And it just didn't work for me. Sure. You want to go or you want me to? No, I'm not even going to give an answer. <laughs> Okay, shockingly, this is where the movie started to get better for me. <laughs> it sparked an interest in me because okay. of what Rachel said. I'm like, oh, okay, so at least that money's going to be paid off now. We're going to find out what that was about. And that money's used to pay for the expanse of this coven. It's a huge exposition dump. Exposition dump. It's terrible writing. You're never supposed to do that. We're 66 minutes in. Wah. And we haven't established that. There was a whole lot of inquisition or curiosity that could have revealed that in the library of the ballet or at a library elsewhere that her and her little friend could have done together. But it said she was asleep because she was drugged, I guess. At least at this point, I actually stopped it and said, okay, so we're an hour and six minutes into this. Now I'm at least semi maybe we're going somewhere. And actually from this to the end of the film is what's going to salvage some of this movie for me. Okay. But it's it's shit writing. You cannot do that. And it's even worse when you consider what has happened up to that point because if it was big moments, then maybe it's excusable, but there just weren't. There just weren't. We get stupid, you know, Rocky Horror Picture Show arguments. We get a couple of deaths that are okay. The dog one's pretty good. And we talked about the non-barbed wire thing, but mm -hmm. um, well, Rachel, that's really interesting that you brought that up. It does sort of explain maybe the ties to the story that was the opus for this and the use of the location in Germany. But there is still one huge thing that I think we're both sort of getting at. And I thought the same thing too. Why a ballet school? Why a ballet school? There's any number of ways that you could bring new potential um, joinies into your coven. A karate dojo. <laughs> it's the Helena Marco School for the occult and dance. for people who want to learn how to do dance, too. Originally, yes, that's what it was. Yeah. If you don't like witchcraft, we got ballet. <laughs> what Want to be on scholarship? Pick your poison. It's certainly... Argento's known. Wait a minute. No, no. You have to give... You, I want to hear yours. I will. Let me, let me okay, say this okay. real quick. Argento's routinely known for this particular scene and I, I just call it the exposition dump it's just like everything stops so we can sit and talk to kind of catch you up on kind of what the plot is and maybe that's an, an italian like stylistic like storytelling mechanism it might be yeah maybe we're spoiled yeah uh 
I think it's interesting. Like uh, I'm intrigued by it, and I'm like, oh, okay. Like like they're gonna do the money. It doesn't make sense for me. But I'm in a different headspace at this point watching this movie, and it's gonna kind of curtail my rating a little bit. I don't know if a lot of this story and payoffs and stuff necessarily like kill the movie for me. I would never kind of put style and substance over story, but to me, style and substance in this film win over story. Fair. So let's get to the finale here. So everyone's dead. Or <laughs> I love this little bit. Uh, Madame Blanc bought uh, tickets to this uh, concert for everybody, but no one told Susie. So she's like, how come no one told me? And so she's left at the school, but she kind of figures it out. This is like her hero moment. She kind of says the steps aren't going this way. They're going that way. Um, so she kind of dumps and flushes all her drugged food away. She's like, well, th- I think that's how they're getting to me. And then goes into the room. We kind of get the the reveal of what the iris means and kind of the reveal of the secret behind the curtain of the witch as we delve deeper into the inner sanctum of this witch school. Uh, this final sequence, we get the the reveal of Helena Marcos and the witches and modern blocks. Like, she must die. Die, I tell you. Die. And then they like, they. I thought they brought her cocaine, but it must have been something else. I thought it was flesh. I thought that whatever she ate was flesh. Well, then you see flesh blood would be a more bountiful booty than money. Right. They're like pirates. It's like pirate <laughs> witches. Arr, kill the American. <laughs> uh, Did, didn't it look like a piece of flesh when she took a bite of that? It looked like a piece of like white bread. I didn't know if this was like <laughs> it was a commu- witch communion. A communion or- wafer. <laughs> Well, and she just, it's like this little finger sandwich size thing. And she takes the like tiniest, daintiest little bite. She's like this powerful witch that's like second in charge of this coven. And then she just takes like a tiny baby bite of this thing and drinks out of her like tumbler full of coffee, whatever that giant cup is. Yeah. That's what happened. But we get the grand reveal now. She confronts Elena Marcos and her stumbles into her room hiding from, what's his name? Pavlos? Oh, Yeah. Uh, Pablo's. Yeah. He's hunting her. And then she says, oh, you want to kill me? And then, like, she kind of rises from the bed. And, like, the first time I saw this, I was like, oh, my God. Like, like we're getting it. We're going to get the reveal. And then she's like, this is crusty, disgusting thing. Um, but I do like the entrance of reanimated Sarah coming in with blood spilling out of her mouth with a knife. Like, that. that that's that's pretty effective image right there. Yes. But... What do you guys kind of think of this end? Is it a lot too quick? Is it enough of a payoff? Does it kind of just burn up in flames? <laughs> like, I want to know. I think it was fine. I think the I was ready for the movie to be done by this point. So the hasty ending was not terrible for me. Um, and then it's, you know, bookended nicely at the end when she's out in the rain with the very beginning where she's out there in the rain. Um, I thought, you know, Sarah's reanimated corpse gave me the creeps big time. I have a thing about eyes. I don't like people with needles sticking out of their eyes. You cannot so. watch opera then. Okay. Opera, just real quickly. So the lead girl who's the understudy that has to play the in the Macbeth opera, the killer's playing a game with her and he tapes needle, five needles underneath her eyes. That way, if she closes them, she's going to poke them. That way she watches the people getting killed in front of her. So if you got an eye thing, there's a lot of eye stuff in opera. (laughs) So, you know, I thought this was fine. I thought it was scary. I thought it was, it got you where you needed to be at the end of the film. Um, I thought the 
hallway was interesting with all of the writing. And it was the, I think maybe the only place that was really just kind of black and I mean, it was black and gold, but kind of not overly saturated with color, which I thought was an interesting choice. I don't even know what I want the witch to look like. Like do you, the only thing I can think of, do you, have you ever seen the witches, the Roald doll adaptation of mm-hmm. witches? Like that's a good witch. Like maybe it could look like that, but I don't know. I don't even know what I want the witch to look like. Witches look just like, like hocus pocus. That's what a witch looks like. Yeah. Um, I didn't understand why she was revealed upon the strikes of lightning. There's definitely an element of witchcraft and weather. She was invisible. No, I know. (laughs) But why did lightning allow her outline (laughs) to suddenly appear? Because that was the technology of the day and they wanted to really show off. I don't mind the way that she dies. I don't mind the showdown. We have to get there sooner or later. And at least my protagonist has taken an active role in her own film now. I kind of like what wakes her up. Doesn't she like knock over that like vase and like and the balls kind of like hit the, the, the bedside? That, that was pretty interesting. Did you think you could kill me? Right. So I don't know what a witch is supposed to look like either. I think it works. Yeah. She looks crusty. <laughs> crusty ass witch. Right? <laughs> Been working the streets for 94 years. You'd be crusty too, buddy. That's not what she really looks like. I know. <laughs> but you don't know that though. I don't. Um, Yeah, I struggled with that. But I, I was happy with the payoff at the end. I also was really ready for the film to be done with. And I was pretty glad when the protagonist ended up happily ever after as evidenced by the smile as she walks away. Cause then I thought maybe we won't get any more of this. Um, I was really done with the film Nothing at this so- point, even though I was, that's the most interesting piece and the crowning moment for horror in the film is her reanimated friend. That is the best moment in this film. Nothing horror wise. Nothing says I enjoyed that movie. Like I was ready for the movie to be over. <laughs> I was, I, I, I tried, man. I just, it was a long 99 minutes. Well, I'm curious. We might have to just bring this little team back to talk about this Aspira remake, but I'd be curious to get your guys' thoughts on Inferno, which is the second part in this trilogy, because it's kind of a similar movie, but it maybe pays off a little bit more than this one does. I did some research on that because I didn't know it was a trilogy. Mm-hmm. And the idea of that trilogy has me intrigued. I want a better delivery than what Suspiria gave me, and I can't speak to Inferno having not seen it. Um familiar with it. I read the plot and spent some time studying it today, but seeing and reading are two different things. Mm -hmm. If these three witches are sisters and they have a grand design in some new coven that is dominant upon mankind, that's an interesting take. I don't know if a mid 19th century story slash poem is as interesting for a launching point as Argento found it to spawn all of these three characters in these films. But a connective piece to that is pretty cool. Supposedly the one in this Helena Marcos is the oldest. The one in Inferno is the youngest and the one in the third one, was it um, something of the mother or something like that? Tears of the blood of the mother Mm -hmm. is the most violent. You said the third one in 2007 was awful. It just waited too long. Yeah. He was so wa- they lost their mojo. And he was washed up by then. But here's what else was really interesting. Argento was asked about the stylized way that he made this film. And he said, I chose to do it sort of fairy tale-ish or like to kind of take the edge off of it because this shit's real. He was all in on this. And if you go back to anything that Asia Argento has said before she became persona non grata, mm-hmm. 
who was supposed to direct the fourth film in this series, which is going to be a prequel to this movie. She references the same thing too. I think there is a definite tie in the Argento family to the occult and Argento. Like there's, there's hype, there's pre-movie hype. And there's what Argento said about the Dan Dan Aykroyd's of the paranormal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This, this is real. So I think that intrigues me a little bit more. So maybe we do need to get this team back together and do this. I have some questions for for you guys, and we'll kind of get into our ratings. What was your favorite tasting note, favorite scene of the film? I think the end, I think where, where Sarah's reanimated corpse comes out is, I think, feels like a payoff for the film. I think it's the most kind of horrifying. It's the most occulty bit. Um I think that for me is is the is the spot. Same. Mine's the beginning. I said it. I think it's one of the, one of the best choreographed death sequences in all of this genre. So it it's a high that never lives up to again for the rest of this film. Okay, is there an? Oh my god! I need to take a shot or maybe polish off the rest of this cider moment of this film because it's. So shocking or so atrocious. <laughs> so atrocious. Uh, you know, I think for me, it, it's really low key. It's not shocking, but I think it's just the exposition. Um, if you're going to go through the trouble of having an exposition and explain everything that your movie is supposed to be about, it has to make sense and it has to pay off. And I think for me, that's just the part for me where I... I could I hit a wall there and I couldn't get past it. The fight with Daniel and Mrs. whatever the hell her name is over the dog. Oh, Miss Tanner. Frau Farbissina. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I roll cringeworthy, like give me a break. Yeah. That was yeah, absurdly bad. I think mine Sarah's triple Lindy into the barbed wire or regular wire. It just doesn't. It's uh, I kind of tune out in horror films when characters make very questionable decisions, and the kind of reveal of that was she jumped and then the camera panned down like a foot, and then <laughs> she she knew what she was getting into, and then just starts thrashing about like she's like drowning or something. It's a it's a it's kind of a deal breaking scene for me. I kind of fast forwarded through that scene because I've seen this movie many times, but it's a scene that goes on I think ten minutes a little too long. So. Yeah. Who's the master distiller on Suspiria? Rachel. Um, I'm actually going to go with the production designer because I think that the set was really stunning and interesting. And that I think was maybe like visually, the visuals were the best part of the film for me, I think. Um, So Giuseppe Bassan was the, the production designer. Good name. Yeah. It has an interesting look, and I was glad for the cubist shape that happened because, like I said, it kept me entertained. At least there were interesting images to sort of try to decipher and why that was that paneling, was that um, lattice, what was that. If that's the production designer or set designer that she just mentioned, I'm going to go with that. I think the exterior look of the walls interior scene-wise was remarkable looking. That's what I would say. It's a well put together movie. Yeah, it's 
Yeah. Set set wise and it has a look to it. There's no doubt about yeah. that. For sure there's a look to it. Excellent. I'm gonna give it to, especially after what you just said. This isn't my favorite Argento movie, but the guy's all in on this movie. I'm gonna make a movie about the occult because I believe in that. I'm gonna make it a fairy tale. We're gonna make this look like Snow White. I'm gonna have Goblin do the music before we start shooting. I'm gonna get these Americans, these Italians, these Germans together. And put somewhat of a story together, but I'm just going to make it look and just go all in on style. And amen to him for that. I mean, not a lot of people or directors will. And I guess he was rewarded for that. I mean, the movie was a hit in its own right, and it awarded him to make other movies that I actually enjoy a whole lot better. Um, Phenomenon is another interesting one, too. It's Jennifer Connelly's second movie with Donald Pleasance in that movie, too. So... It's about bugs. She can conjure insects like to her to her to her will. But it's also like a serial killer movie too. So you have that. I'm gonna go Argento. Again, not my favorite. I don't even know if it's in my top three favorite Argento movies, but the guy's all in on making this thing, and I can't vault him for that. Okay, you two, how are you gonna rate and grade Suspiria? We have Rocket, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. I'm gonna go well, solid well for me. I think I wasn't unhappy when I was watching this movie, um, but if I'm flipping channels and it's on, I'm going to see what else is on and then maybe like do a load of laundry or something instead. I don't know that I need to see this again. Matt? Yeah, it's well for me. It's probably well minus. <laughs> That's an improvement from the first time. I, I knew you did. I, I detested I, this film the I first time. I knew you time. didn't like it the it, first time I brought it up. Yeah. It's done better. Mm-hmm. Either it hasn't aged the same movie. Maybe I have, mm-hmm. for sure I have. Um, it's weird too because I spent a lot of time looking at what critics said about this, and this is on the list of all timers with horror stuff. It's the man. I think we have beat this up in a fair way and broken down some really difficult to digest or explain moments. This is not some hawk need. Uh, I just don't like it because it sucked. Like there is, I think, very discernible questions that the movie refuses or fails to answer. There is no way on earth that this is top anything in horror. It's just not. It's. I'll give it some credit. If it's the first to the game with witches, so be it. We talked about that to begin with. That's it. Mm-hmm. And it, man, it is top 15 on just about every horror. There's no, there's no, we, did we all miss it? Cause I mean, there's no way we're going, let's hear what you got. (laughs) in your mouth. Top shelf. No, I'm kidding. I'm going to throw this at you. No, um, I'm going to go call plus on this one only because I have a wide palette for this genre, whether that be slasher found footage uh, the universal monster stuff, sci- sci-fi horror, like it, it goes all over the place. And I attribute the genre most to a roller coaster ride. And sometimes I'm just along for the ride. Like I said earlier, I would never give any other film a pass uh, over style and substance over story. But in this regard, I'm going to give it to that because, you know, th- just kind of think of this genre. Other, you mentioned like David Lynch, but there's not another horror movie that looks like this that uh, kind of like is so invasive with colors and it's set design and the soundtrack is part of that too. I think it's monotonous for a reason. 
there's very few horror films like it, but I would never camp it into the realm of like Halloween and the thing and Texas Chainsaw, the exorcist. Like it doesn't have business being there, but I do enjoy a good ride with my horror. And as I said, Argento, I could three other Argento movies I'd pick over this one, but it's a fun ride at the same time. And sometimes that's what I need with my horror. So call plus for me. Rachel, you said this was your first time through. Mm-hmm. Okay. I thought that. Yeah. So Jesse, I'm going to ask you this. When did you see this? What age? And did it scare you the first time you saw it? I think I saw that. Um, I wish they'd run it again. Maybe, maybe you've seen it, but the Bravo channel did yeah. something in like 2003. Yep. I know what you're talking about. Top scariest moments. The hundred scariest yep. movie moments. It was like this great countdown over like, Eight hours. Guillermo del Toro has such a good take on the thing. Oh, yeah. Talking about the spider. The, so yep. mm-hmm. so I think it was in that one. I think it was the the the, the opening kill was, was in that. So I, was, yeah, it was. I, I think I made a list when I watched that. I was like, okay, I haven't seen these ones. I need to check them out. So I think I went and just bought it because like you couldn't rent stuff as readily at that point anymore. They were all closing down. So I went and bought it. And I guess I kind of was disappointed that it didn't like have more bang for kind of like what that offered. Um, but as I kind of dug more into Argento and I've kind of found his giallo roots and the other movies that he likes, I kind of, I came to appreciate Suspiria a little bit more. I never placed it higher than some of the other ones, but, um, I, I didn't ever found it like scary. It never scared me. Like any yikes, scary moments for you. The Helena Marco stuff is kind of like, it's kind of a little peculiar, but like not in like, I need to check my bed under my bed kind of a way. I don't think I like jumped much at anything, but when, when Sarah came out of the closet, I did the like shake in my head, like, I don't like this. Um, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't scary. And I think the, there wasn't a lot of like buildup of suspense. Like you think something's going to jump out at you or you, there's not a lot of, there's not a whole lot of tension in the film. I don't think. Right. Oh, that's true. It's fast and intense and in your face when it, when it does happen. So Yeah. Call plus for for me. Okay. He, he's not for everybody. I'll tell I'll tell you this much right now. Like it's it's kind of an experience to kind of get involved with that type of Italian whore. And I think Fulci's stuff is even more hard to stomach. I mean, it's certainly gorier, but like <laughs> it's it's a it's such a a journey to trudge through. And I'm just not a fan. I'm with you. I think Mario Bava is probably probably my favorite. Homework, Rachel. You got to go check out some Bava. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Black Sunday's worth your time. All right. It, yeah, so that's a very witchy movie. And, and then he did a, an anthology movie called Black Sabbath where uh, Boris Karloff is kind of like, you're like Rod Serling introducing all the tales, which are all like Victorian era tales, which is, which is pretty good. So he was kind of like the godfather of these guys. Yeah. Maybe literally. I think he was the godfather of some of them. Literally. (laughs) Yeah. All righty, guys. Awesome. I love your ratings. Let's wrap this thing up with a nightcap. I also wish you guys could have come watched it with me because I I just got the the 4K version of this. This was one of the last movies uh, uh, made in Technicolor. So as I've told you with like the 4K format, the films that look the best are the films that were shot on film. So this qualifies at that and like they pop. So you have that going for you. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's a good watch. Rachel, hit us with that nightcap. Okay. So um, definitely Argento was not shy about his use of color in this film. 
So my question to you uh, is, what is, in your opinion, the best use of color in film? When Jesse gave me this, I loved it. It was a great question. And it was a real easy answer for me. If colors used appropriately or properly, I think it does a great job of driving story or focusing attention. A secondary choice would be Sin City. I think that's a beautiful film. But I'm not sure the color in that film serves the purpose with the one that I'm going to name. The use of color in Unbreakable, in the specified scene in the train station where David Dunn is standing with his cloak on in a Christ-like pose, touching those that walk by, illuminating the criminals, is so smart. It is the best of Shemilan. It's the best. He, that, is his, that is his Citizen Kane moment. It is the best he's ever done. There's other good moments. That is the best. And that is also my favorite use of color in film because it's not black and white, but it might as well because the tones of the non-criminals are also muted. Earth tones, warm-ish. And just this drove of people in the middle of a train station except for the perpetrators of evil, and they are glowing with just the attire that they would normally wear. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. We both kind of hated glass, but even that scene in yeah. glass and what I called the pastel rose room mm-hmm. with them, like that's a pretty good use of color of all four characters in that one. Pink, the green, the purple, and the yellow. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> what? I thought you were going to go into Rapper's Delight. The pink, the green, the purple, and the yellow. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, so I I thought when I thought of this question, the first thing I thought of was the Lion King, because I think mm-hmm. Disney makes a really good use of color in a way that makes sense to children. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to go with the fall. Um, Tarzan sings the fall. Um, I think just the kind of beiginess of the hospital and then the vibrancy of all of the colors that he uses in this like story world. Um, it's just beautifully shot. And I think I think I like it the most. Okay, it's good. It's a good choice. So I'm gonna the film I'm gonna pick, and you know, color use. And when I was kind of just like just googling stuff and just trying to like think of get my brain cooking on like uses of color in film, there's a controversial way to color films. One of the first movies to do this was Oh Brother Where Art Thou. So you have Roger Deakins who shoots his movies, maybe the best cinematographer ever, and then in post-production, they go and pump up the color volumes to make it that movie look more sepia to them. They didn't film it like that. That's done in a computer. And there's a lot of hearsay on whether that's ethical or not. I think it looks great. So I'm actually going to pick another film that's made use of that. And it's actually, we covered it recently. It's Mad Max Fury Road. Mm-hmm. Uh, to really pull out the orange and the rust of this dystopic future... I think we said the word rust punk on that episode, Um, but not even just that. I mean, the green means so much, and there's very little of it in that film, and then blue just represents death so well um, in the wastelands. But all that's done after the fact, but I think they they, they did it properly, like, they did it with, like, the the right sense, and that's a good-looking movie, too, Mm -hmm. so that's going to be my choice. I also think of the flares, the yellow and the red, like road flares, and then that tornado sequence. Oh, yeah. A lot of colors going on in that one. So very sandy, very sandy movie. 
good. Those are good choices. Thank you, Rachel. I, I really enjoyed both of those questions. So thank you for coming. I hope you've had had a good time. Uh, any film that you'd ever want to come back for, like. Well, I've already tried to kind of stake my claim on the thing, but I think probably a second choice would be uh, if you ever did Spinal Tap. We got to cover both of those movies for sure. Mm-hmm. There's a whole stake in mockumentary that's just waiting for, or even Rob Reiner, like a Rob Reiner cast would be great. I'm surprised we haven't found a way or you haven't found a way to work in the thing yet. Well, we're, just, we're, building, we're building to it. Jesse loves that film. It might be a three-hour episode. Could be. <laughs> There's just a lot to say with it, I'm, oh, but, yeah. but we're, I'm saving it for, for a reason. Yeah. Excellent. Noted. Noted. All righty. So that closes the lid on this cask. It's been a lot of fun. We hope you've enjoyed listening to it. Uh, hit us up on Facebook or Instagram, any of the socials. Um, subscribe by Apple Podcasts, Spotify. If you like what you're hearing, rate and review. It's a great way to just push traction. And like I mention all the time, it's how I find a lot of my podcasts that I listen to just like on a whim. We're coming up on two huge numbers, Ryan Nation. Mm-hmm. Not yet, but we're getting close. And when that happens, we've got a couple kind of exciting things planned. But two huge, huge numbers, I think, from what we started and where this has moved to. Yeah, it's been been fun the last last year and a half. So yeah. coming up next for the Roll Us Out the rest of October. So last year, we started with the starter pack. So we did Friday 1, Nightmare 1, and Halloween 1. So what better way than to just continue the October trend with... We're going to call it the terrible twos, but some of these movies aren't terrible. They're actually pretty decent. So up first, up on tap next week, Friday the 13th, part two. When's the last time you've seen this one? Mm, I probably have seen that in like the last six years. Okay. I have a collect, like an anthology that's one through five on that. So I got a bit too far. I got a box set that's like on its way to the house now it's oh. like it's like the first time all of them have ever been together including the remake and freddy vs jason so i'm very excited to tear into that thing so you're gonna ever, be here in time i yeah it should be here this week so we should we should be I, I haven't tortured you with friday the 13th sequels have i you, no you haven't given us friday the 13th at all okay good uh, but this is it this is the first time we get to see the real jason up on screen and there's going to be a lot to talk about. Honestly, Matt, I think part two is better than the first one. So mm, we'll see. Let's get right into it. So cheers, everybody. Cheers. Everybody. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so we got we got mugs instead of whiskey glasses this week. Right. But I got to get going. I'm going to go open up a witch dojo because I think that's going to bring more money in than that dance school. That could maybe be the fourth season of Karate Kid. Cobra Kai. Yeah, what do you think? Yep, let's do it. I've got to go pick up my little Dutch boy from school. (laughs) Arnold (laughs) or Albert. What's his name? Albert. Excellent. Thank you, Rachel. And we'll see you all next week. Thank you, Rachel. Everybody have a good week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rise Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd greatly appreciate it. Suspiria is property of Sita Spedicoli, Produzioni Atlas Consorziate, and International Classics, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, witch, 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 witch. witch. <laughs>
You wanted to kill Elena Marcus. <laughs> Hell is behind that door. You're going to meet death now. <laughs> the living dead. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha,